This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today we are interviewing Dr. Catherine Raven. She's the author of Fox and I. Catherine is recently retired from university teaching at South University in Savannah. Catherine Raven graduated from the University of Montana with degrees in sociology and botany. At Montana State University, she earned a doctorate in biology and a nomination into Sigma Xi, and I, I honor society for research scientists. Fox and I is a New York Times bestseller a Barnes & Noble selection for the best science book, and a Christian Science Monitor selection as one of the five best nonfiction books of 2021. Fox and I won the Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award and the Nautilus Gold for Nature Writing. It was shortlisted for John Burroughs Medal for Distinguished Book in Natural History and the Great Plains Book Award. A lot of awards and recognition for Catherine. So, Catherine, it's great to be talking with you. It's going to be interesting. So, welcome aboard. Thank you. So, Catherine, let's just start out. When did you first start writing? I started writing about animals when I had my undergraduate degree at the University of Montana. Um, as you said, I had degrees in zoology there. I had a very uh, nomadic life before that, and it was very difficult, I think, to write. Uh, with yeah. desk, I think. I applied for study at the University of Montana from a campground at uh, Lassen National Park in the wintertime, and, and that was not a vacation, Jay. That was actually my, that's where I was living. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and yeah. I remember filling out the application with a pencil because when everything you own is in your car and you're kind of living on the road like that, you, <laughs> a, a pen can really make a big mess. It can right. get all over the place. So I worried that they wouldn't accept me. Uh, but I remember writing on my application that I wanted to study uh, plants and animals because I wanted to write about animals. So that's when I knew, yeah. <laughs> so your, your PhD is in wildlife biology, is that right? My doctorate from Montana State University is in biology, and that, uh, that was very critical and one of the best decisions I ever made. When I started my doctorate, I was working for the Park Service, and so I was willing to give up some of that time to do university work, but I wasn't willing to give up my summers. I was a backcountry ranger, and I was working in the oh. field, and different ways that people can learn about animals, but for me... Being in the field all the time with them, 10 days at a time, two weeks at a time without ever coming out, that was much more important to me than giving that up and getting a wildlife degree, which would require me to do studies, objective by animals, and, and do field work for right. a, a biology, research biologist in the summer. I didn't want to do that. And the other thing is, um, as it turned out, which I did not know at the time, it turned out that having a PhD in biology allowed me to work from home to get my, my professorship and stay home. And there just isn't that kind of a demand with right. wildlife. So it's really good. So do you think of yourself primarily as a wildlife scientist or as a writer? 
Well, one of the things that I learned from Fox and I, and I hope people will read slowly because you learn, the readers will learn what I learned slowly, and it's not something that's like, boom, a lightning strike. But what I learned slowly from the Fox is that when you grow up and need to decide what you want to do, what you want to be, you should be a bird. Shouldn't be trying to chase hounds, and that's what I was doing. Should I be a biologist, a wildlife biologist, a government, a manager, writer? What I wanted to talk, what I learned was that I'm an animal. Of course, humans are animals, and we should define ourselves and chase down not nouns, not titles, define us, but we should pick our our habits and our habitat and our habits. Are the thi- are verbs right? Things that we do. So, myself by verbs. What I what I do is I uh, I'm observing wildlife. I'm listening to it. I'm interpreting it. I'm advocating for it. I'm also managing land. It's only eight acres, but it's still eight acres of wild land. So I'm yeah. I'm managing. And I'm writing. And of course, advocating is a big thing that I do. But but. Well, winning the E.O. Wilson Award makes me, I love E.O. Wilson, of course, he's my big hero. And he is a person who believes that we need to start giving immediately more land to wild places and wildlife. And I'm, I'm very much dedicating um, what's left of my life, which I hope will be longer, but uh, <laughs> that same idea, more land, more land for animals and wildlife. Right. So is Fox and I your first book? Well, I wrote a forestry book that I'm really proud of. I'm sure you never heard of it. It's a text. It's a middle grade textbook, and uh, um, it's called Forestry: The Green World. And I loved, as you know, my degrees on both plants and uh, animals because it's difficult to study animals if you don't also study their habitat. The forestry book allowed me to write in first person. They allowed me a lot of creativity. And they also included a lot of photos in that book. That was published by Chelsea House. So that was a, a textbook for middle grades, and I loved that. But, so this is my second, and now I'm working on the third. Ah. So you write as well as teach. Uh, uh, are you still teaching? Uh, what do you do? Yes, I'm still teaching um, part-time. When I stopped the full-time teaching, I, I, I love students. <laughs> I uh-huh. can't. Of course, I love my colleagues. I love University. I still teach part time. I'm teaching um, biology to undergrads, non majors. And before I started writing Fox and I, I was mostly teaching the 400 level classes. For example, I taught biodiversity at the 400 level, I taught ecology at the 400 level. When I started writing Fox and I, I offered to take the 100 and 200 level classes. I'm settled now in the 200, the non-majors though. That's what I really wanted to do was deal with non-majors so that I would Mm -hmm. learn to avoid the jargon that we have in our field because Fox and I, there's two kinds of books, I guess, for wildlife folks. One is the book, books that are made for specialists. And my book, Fox and I, is for generalists. It's not meant to be read by people that have, only by people that have degrees in the field. I, I want to speak to the general public. And so teaching non-majors helped me do that. And I I learned that people who do not have degrees in biology are brilliant and wonderful and creative. And so I just, I just was so, it's just so exciting to be with um, 
kids that are majoring in computer science and art mm. and dance, yeah. friends. It's it's wonderful. So that's what I'm that's what I'm teaching now, and I'm still teaching from home. I'm still in the same uh, Blue Roofs Cottage because um, the university, which when I started was I think the only university in the country that allowed you to teach from home. Now it's twenty years ago. Um, I'm still teaching from home. I love it. Uh-huh. So you bridge the chasm between the scientific and the literary or emotive. Do you find any conflict between the two? You know, I do bridge that, and I don't know that I set out to do that, but the E.O. Wilson Award was an award for literary science writing, and that made me so excited because when you bridge two things, you always assume, and I think it's probably true to some extent, that you're just going to be ostracized by both groups. (laughs) You're not really quite a science writer, and you're not really quite literary. I mean, I don't have a degree in literature, so... um, I do feel like they fit together really well for me. And this is how I think of it. Science, which I love and always will love that discipline, sheds the absolute brightest possible light on our world. But the beam, if you think of it as a light beam, it's just so darn narrow, isn't it? I mean, it's bright. It's narrow. And if you want to see the whole picture, the whole world, you can't just rely on science. In order to get that fuller picture, you have got to be someone who has empathy, who understands emotion, you have to have intuition. Those are the other ways that knowledge in the world. All of our knowledge cannot come from science. Otherwise, the beam, the, the light beam is just too narrow, right? What's your objective when you when you are writing? This book was written for Fox as a as a gift, as a debt to uh, him. We uh, always write uh, with the same goal that I teach, which is I want to improve the lives of my audience, whether it's students or readers. I'm not trying to teach them instruct them, beat them over the head, make them change their mind. I want them to be happy. I want the books that I write, my writing, to make people's lives better. I want them to feel emotion. To feel, sure, they're going to cry because I write real stories, even if I'm writing they're true. I write the truth. So sometimes people are going to be sad because this is life. But overall, at the end, I want people to feel like their lives have been improved by reading my book, that they've gathered some wisdom from Fox and I that's, that they're able to apply, that they've, that they've laughed when they've read the book, and that when they've cried, it's reminded them of other things in their life that have made them cry, and they've learned to get over that. So always my books are, if I had to pick one word, I would say entertaining. That's always uh-huh. my goal. Right uh-huh. and teach. It's always entertaining. So Fox and I is placed at a remote college or a cabin that uh, you describe as similar to a fox's den. I assume it was somewhere out in Montana, somewhere. Yes, it's out in the mountains here, in the foothills, and I was surprised that it was so much like his den, but uh, I burrowed into the hill. It just seemed instinctive to burrow into a mountain because that way the bottom floor of your house is underground, except for the front of um, the, the front. Yeah. It, it, 
means that you use very little energy. And then the upper level, I guess I kind of modeled that after the fire lookouts that I had spent so much time in um, working for the park service. I supervised a couple of fire lookouts and spent oh. a lot of time. They were all glass all the way around. So the top level takes in a lot of sun so that even on a cold day in Montana. So he burrowed into the hillside, I guess, for the same reason. I think that we both like uh, the sun and we're both very conscious of the wind. So we're getting ourselves on the wind. We're both looking the same direction. We're both looking the prettiest direction. We're both looking. So his den, he faces the prettier um, mountains and, uh, and so do I and the river. Yes. So you uh, you said, I, I guess in an interview that I saw, that physical presence is your stimulus for writing as opposed to observations or ideas. I wish you could see me, Jay, but then uh, you'd see me rolling my eye. I roll my eyes when people start talking about just ideas, these nebulous, I just, and I probably shouldn't, because people have different ways of, I know people will write whole books. Three, four, five pages on something like love or hope or yeah, I can't. Uh, no, I, I'm not a person that can spend this time on things that you cannot see or touch or or smell. I, I have to have things in front of me that are physical. I write even uh, the novel I'm working the same way. I really focus. Um, pictures, not ideas. And so you'll see in Fox and I the wisdom, the ideas that I express in the book, there'll be a sentence or two scattered about. Most of the book is, is scenes. I write from scenes rather than just uh, expository writing. Um, you won't just get stream of consciousness out of me. I just don't, I just don't work that way. I absolutely have to have a picture in front of me. And I know that perhaps something like love is the elephant in the room with a book when you write about an animal that you care very much about. I don't use the word love in Fox and I, but to me, I would say that he had so much trust for me and he gave me so much joy. So those two things mean something to me. I have a picture. When I say trust, I just see him always, always. That word means the night that he brought his four kids down to my house in the moonlight. And he let me babysit them while he slept or pretended to sleep. And they were so little. And there was, there's, a we there's still a weasel here in the draw. And, you know, it was dangerous. And he trusted me that much. So trust means something to me. And that's my picture that night of trust. And he gave me so much joy because he spent time with me. And I think about the egg games, you know, the games that we played, for example. So I see those things and those are real events. So I'm not going to write, you know, a chapter about what is joy or a chapter about what is trust or a chapter about what is love. For me, that's it. It's those two scenes in my mind, a day playing um, a game with him, the egg game with him and the night that he brought the kids down. And that's my feeling about trust and joy and love, because I think love is just trust and joy together. Well, I think friendship was also mentioned as, as your theme, that you made a friend of Fox. Yes, 
And I think that the reason why this book is so interesting in terms of what it says about friendship is because I was approaching it for the first time. Some ways I think about travel writers and when they go to a new place, they're able to see it with fresh eyes. And it's a different kind of writing than if you ask someone who lives, for example, in Montana, who's been living in Montana for 40 years to describe the same place they live, it's going to be different than somebody who's just seeing it for the first time. And for me, at my age, here I was approaching friendship for the first time. I was really isolated emotionally. So just the most extreme moment. And I was learning about friendship with him. So because I was new to friendship, I was exploring it and presenting it with fresh eyes and learning about it. I learned how bold he became as he became friends with me, as you know, we were seeing each other every day. And I realized that that's one of the things that friendship does. It, it emboldens you. And I realized that it made me more empathetic. It didn't make me sentimental towards him, but just more empathetic, more sympathetic towards him. Hmm. I realized that's one of the things friendship does. And I also realized that friendship is a lot of work. You have, you know, responsibilities. And so approaching friendship for the first time is is very different than a book that might be (laughs) a book of 400 pages that's just about friendship that's studying it using science and data and all of that. It, it, It was just... It was a very natural process for me, and we were well into our relationship before I realized that this is what was happening, that this is a friendship, actually. And then I got to the point when I realized that he was my best friend, and I actually got up the nerve to tell my students that one day. At first, I was, you know, embarrassed about it, and maybe perhaps I was just too smart to go around telling people that my best friend was Fox. I realized as soon as I said it, because I said it to them in person, I was lecturing in Yellowstone Park with my students at the University of Montana's Dillon campus. And when I said my best friend is a wild red fox, I realized from looking at the faces that when you say that, people realize that your only friend is a fox. I mean, nobody has a best friend who's a fox unless that's your only friend. So it was a... It was kind of mortifying, but that's okay. You have to be willing to be embarrassed for your friends, right? I mean, you, you, you can't hide them away. And sometimes you just, so I did. So I just, I just came out and, and admitted it. And, uh, I think I got a lot of strength from Son Zopere, probably mispronouncing his name. I'm sorry. I call him St. X in the book, the gentleman who wrote The Little Prince. And uh, oh, he also wrote Winston and Yes, Winston and Stars, one of my favorite books. And of course, he had a relationship with a fox, too, which I didn't learn about until until I met my fox. So there are some pages in your book that were written as they were told from Fox's point of view. Is that right? Yes. That was uh, really the beginning. The book started, Jay, with Fox's point of view. And my, my uh, point of view came in afterwards that I was originally, because I was writing the book for him, I wanted to tell mm-hmm. the story from his point of view. That was not a struggle for me. And I think people have to write the way that comes naturally to them. If it's a struggle for you to write from someone else's point of view, you probably need to change 
the way that, that you're writing. I love third person writing and I like third person with a really close point of view where you're reading mm -hmm. third person, but it feels like you're reading it first person. And I And if you don't have that empathy, then you just, you absolutely can't do it. It's not something that you can force. So what unique did you learn about Fox? What were his unusual characteristics? I learned that we are, you know, we try to keep humans apart from so many other animals, and we are actually a lot more like other animals than we want to believe. I think, I mean, obviously he was diurnal. That That's, and I had a skunk on my place last year who was very, very diurnal, and that's really unusual, but you can't have a relationship with an animal unless they're diurnal. We tend to believe that so many animals are nocturnal, but scientists, again, you asked me if I had a degree in wildlife biology. If you, if you study wildlife biology, you're you have to generalize. So the average fox, of course, they're nocturnal animals, perhaps, but if they don't have, if they have no reason to be afraid and they have a friend who's out in the daytime, then they'll be out during the daytime. So he was diurnal. He was not afraid of me, which is mm. very interesting. He was very talented at what he did, hunting. And because he was so talented, he had a lot of free time. If you're going to have a friendship with a wild animal, that's the bottom line right there. They have to have free time, so they have to be talented. They can't spend all their time killing things and chasing things down and taking care of their offspring and looking for a mate. And they have to be out during the daytime, and they certainly can't be afraid of you. Besides that, there were two things about him that really impressed me. He had a sense of aesthetics. And that when I went up to his den, I couldn't believe the, I mean, he collects things and scatters them around his den. And they're not things that have any particular use. That's why, I, for example, a chip piece of a pot, a, a, a planter on my property that he had gathered and drug up there. Um, it certainly didn't blow up that hill. And um, he had an old uh, shoulder bone of an elk that was already covered with moss. But he didn't kill that. I mean, he didn't kill an elk. And I don't think when he found it, it had enough meat on any meat on it because it was an old bone. But he had dragged that over there. So he had a, he collected trinkets the same way that I do. And that really impressed me to think that it's possible that he enjoyed uh, collecting things. And he had another habit, which was, perhaps it's not a habit. He had a personality trait, I would say. I believe that he wanted to matter in this world. He wanted to leave a legacy. I think that's a trait that we associate with humans and think perhaps yeah. that's to humans. Now, I didn't have that trait. I wouldn't say I was a person who wanted a legacy. But I believe that he wanted to matter in this world. I think that's why he dogged me around and decided that I was going to be his person, his friend, he was going to mm. stick with me. Because after all, isn't that what friends do? Jay, they, they're your legacy. So you never gave Fox a name, uh, but you've named other creatures like T-Ball, or there was a juniper that you called, or Necky, is that right? Yes, uh, my two favorite junipers are called um, Gin and, uh, and, and Tonic, right? Uh, because that's what the berries are uh, made of Ginny, I guess, and tonics. And I did name some of the magpies, but Fox didn't have a re I didn't have a reason to call him anything other than Fox. 
But uh-huh. that, that is his name. I don't call him the fox after I get to know him. I address him when he comes around and I uh-huh. call him fox. So uh-huh. it is actually his name, but it's just not a human type name because after all, he was the only fox that I was addressing. And there's lots of magpies here. So to distinguish them, I do, do give the magpies names and there's lots of junipers here. So to distinguish my two favorite ones, I do give them names as well, but not Fox. He's just Fox. So uh, Fox had a regular schedule too. Is that right? Yes. That's a really good point, Jay. If an animal doesn't have a regular schedule, I, I did say they have to be diurnal and such, but that's, they absolutely have to have a regular schedule. I, I've, I've learned that because I have tried. So I have a, I have a vixen that's over here um, a lot and I have my little spy camera out as, as you probably read about my spy camera in the book. I love my spy cam. That vixen, changes her schedule just about every two I mean there was one time when she's been here three days in a row at the same time she's only done that once but she's been on my I mean I have her in my spy cam every day for over a year now well since last February it's almost a year um middle of February last year she changes her schedule there's no way I can have a relationship with her because I can't kind of I mean I have to work for a living and I have to sleep and I have to eat and I have errands to do and I can't just wait for her 24 hours a day so the fact that he had a schedule that he came to the exact same place at the exact same time that is something that is absolutely necessary and I think that he did that because he understood I mean he he had that intuition to realize that if you want to make a friend of this person, you want to have a relationship with this person, then you have to be that reliable. You have to be in the same place at the same time so that they know when to meet you. So foxes have short lives. Uh, were you with Fox when uh, his life ended? I wasn't. I feel so I did something really bad and I, I feel terrible about that. And I'm I'm not the best friend in the world. I was learning to be a friend, but I wasn't the best. I had evacuated my house because of the fire and I had no choice in the evacuation because it was mandatory, but I still feel terrible about it. His vixen and and, uh, the kids came back after the fire, but he didn't. And I read about this in the book and how and where he died, but I, I felt still terrible about that. You know, when we have evacuations, I've been evacuated twice in Montana. When we have evacuations, we are responsible for pets, for any animals that we own. I mean, livestock pets, anything that you own, that you license, that you leash. If If it's an animal, then you have that responsibility and the government and the firefighters have that responsibility too. But nobody takes responsibility for wild animals. And uh, he wasn't my pet. He had the same relationship with me as, as any human being would. I didn't reach out and touch him. I didn't own him. I didn't feed him. So he wasn't a pet. He was really a friend and very independent. And it was I hadn't realized, and I had fought fires so much, and I just had never thought about that until this happened with Fox. When there's wildfires, the wildlife, they're on their own, and it's a, it's a hard thing to deal with, but I feel terrible. I abandoned him, really. That's what I did. I abandoned him, and we were uh, evacuated here for a long time, and it was almost, it was days. It was uh, quite frightening. 
Mm. Well, Catherine, we're almost out of time. So, uh, uh, do you you spent several years as a park ranger? Do you miss that life? Well, I certainly encourage every person who is interested, even the slightest bit interested, and do. There's nothing uh, mean. I love writing right now, and I love it as much. It's mm-hmm. important, important to me as breathing. But I would not trade one single day I had in the park service with anything in this world. Um, so, yes, of course, uh, it's just the best. And I think I spend pretty much all my vacations somewhere. And I don't take a lot of vacations in national parks. Yes. Anybody who's listening, please do um, think about being uh, a backcountry ranger. Or think about doing anything with the Park Service, but think about being mm-hmm. backcountry ranger. Um, unfortunately, I will say one thing: the amount of land in the Park Service I think is the same now as it was when I started, but the human population has exploded. That definitely means that being a park ranger today is is a lot less enjoyable. The land, the Park Service land, hasn't grown as the human population has grown, and that's a big problem. And um, it's just a huge problem. Well, Catherine, I really appreciate your taking time to talk to us today. And I hope folks rush out and buy Fox and I and, uh, and read it because it's a wonderful experience that you're relating to people. So thank you very much. You're very our, welcome. Our guest today is Catherine Raven, author of Fox and I, an award-winning book about her experiences with a fox and with other wildlife. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallon Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to jswilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.